Hello, listeners. This is Dr. Baffa with ATG, and today we've got a podcast all about strength training for you. I sat down with Claire Zai, who is a nationally ranked powerlifter and strength coach. She has a master's in physiology, and we go over the basics of strength training, what works in strength training, strength training for men versus women, strength training and the menstrual cycle, whether you'll get slower by strength training, and a lot more. So lots of good information here if you're wondering how to get strong. Also, this is associated with a video that's currently available for subscribers on Patreon, in which I do a deep dive into strength training for Olympic weightlifting. So if you want to check that out, go over to patreon.com slash allthingsgym. Otherwise, hope you enjoy the podcast. So to start, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background in both the sport, uh, in sports more broadly if you want, and also in strength training? Yeah, so... Hi, my name is Claire Zai. I am a nationally competitive powerlifter. That's uh, kind of my my jam with sports right now. I just started getting into weightlifting two weeks ago and competed last, like a couple days ago. So on Saturday was my first meet. And so that was a fun experience. I have my master's in physiology from the University of Colorado uh, most of my training was in biomechanics research and um, more metabolic research, so energetics. So that's where I did a lot of my work. And then after that, I ended up in a research lab here in San Diego. And that research lab landed me. Um, yeah, it landed me here in San Diego. And I worked with um, active military members who were recovering from blast injuries. So lots of amputations and um, limb injuries. So I was working with those individuals. And as that project funding ended, I transitioned to being a, I was a barbell coach for a long time during that. And then I transitioned to full-time barbell coaching for both, um, health and fitness, powerlifting. And that's kind of how I ended up talking to you. Cool. So I now work for barbell medicine as a full-time strength coach. Mm -hmm. And, and you write for them as well. Uh, and we'll probably talk about this later, but you've got a great series, four-part series on uh, the estrogen cycle and training and whatnot. Correct. Uh, how long have you been strength training in and what got you into barbell sports? Yeah, that's a great question. So I started strength training in high school when I was playing soccer. And so that was like a supplement to the soccer training that we were doing. And I didn't love it when I first started. I actually was really afraid of like getting bulky and getting too big as most women are like, that's a fine um, fear to have. And so I didn't really stick with it um, through the rest of high school, but then I got to college. And when I quit sports because of a myriad of reasons, I no longer played soccer. I wasn't a diver anymore. I was like, I'm going to become a gym rat. I didn't consciously make that decision, but that's, that's what happened. And so I, started going to the gym a lot and um, really enjoyed the barbell lifts. So squat bench and deadlift. And um, one of my friends when I was in grad school was like, Hey, your numbers are like kind of competitive. We should put you in a meet. And they tossed me into a meet kind of similar to how I did this weightlifting meet. And I ended up doing very well. I broke state records and placed first in my weight class. And I was like, well, I'm good at this and it's fun. So I might as well keep going mm -hmm. and um, haven't looked back. So how, so you mentioned you had your first weightlifting meet this weekend. How was that experience compared to competing in powerlifting or prep or anything? It was, it was interesting. The, the meets are really similar if you look at them 
like very broadly, right? Like there's a bunch of people lifting barbells. It's very crazy. If you haven't done one before, you're like, where do I go? Where's the sign-in table? Like all of that stuff. Everyone's super nice at every meet. So I was up in LA or I guess it's Newport um, at SoCal weightlifting and everyone was super nice and super helpful. And I would like turn to women. I'm like, what do I do? And they're like, oh, here, let me help you. So that is very similar. Uh, the prep that I did, because I decided two weeks out that I was like, I'm going to do a weightlifting meet. It was just like a slow, steady peak into the meet. And there was no taper. I took everything that I was planning to take beforehand. Um, so the meet itself was fine. The ascending barbell was a little bit weird which I was like kind of uncomfortable with. Um, so I was very thankful to have a friend be there to help me count. And they also have different words for things like counting instead of handling. Someone was there counting lifts for me and telling me when to go. And then other than that, it's really similar. The warm up room's a little different. So at this meet, everyone had their own barbell, which is not common in powerlifting. Um, everyone shares in powerlifting and people are much more comfortable being very close to athletes that are snatching or clean and jerking where in powerlifting, you give people much more room, but the movement's much less dynamic. It was, <laughs> I was like, you guys are very comfortable being near these very fast moving barbells. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it was a, it was fun. It was an awakening though. So that's cool. Yeah. And yeah, it's I've harder. Only... It's I'm bruised. I have like a big bruise on my neck. You can actually see it in the video. Oh yeah. yeah. I don't know how to receive a, a clean yet. I haven't figured it takes time. I haven't figured that out. <laughs> um I've only been to a couple powerlifting meets, but uh the what is it that you guys do? Sort of because we do ascending barbell. We do flights. And flights, that's yeah. it, exactly, right? And that in some ways it's really nice because it's like you more or less know how much time everyone has more or less the same amount of time between attempts, mm -hmm. right? I mean, correctly, if I'm totally wrong, no, here, for sure. But everyone's got about the same amount of time. You know about how much time you have, um, and so it seems much easier to plan. It also, to me, as an outsider, seems like it's uh, less strategy based because you can't. It, it, there don't seem to be the opportunities to throw somebody off by switching an attempt last minute or playing mind games with attempts or anything like that. Like it's, you're kind of locked into the order and that's it. Yes. At some level you are there at the higher levels, you can start to play mind games. So we also have uh, two attempts that you can call on the third lift. You can only do this on the third lift. You can change attempts on the third lift um, and you can kind of play the mind game of trying to get your competitor to jump a little higher than you think they can take. Um, but because there's, it's not an ascending barbell, there's not as much movement that happens. So you'll move by one or two spots. It's not like you're going to move by five, like it yeah. does in weightlifting. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, but the environment seems a little different too. Weightlifters seem like more chill. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that was just the meet i was at but like maybe that's a west coast thing uh, they can, i don't know they can be chill. I also, I, again i've only sorry no no on. i also went from nationals like usapl nationals to a local weightlifting meet and that might have been the difference too like my chillness was very different yes <laughs> so, yes absolutely yeah. um you did mention too how uh, and again i've only been to a couple of meets but like people in powerlifting 
uh, had to share. But I imagine, because in powerlifting, like in squatting, right, like you need some of those big cages, I guess. And so there's only a finite, I mean, there's only a finite number of bars too, but like there might only be two of those cages yeah. to walk out a squat mm-hmm. and everybody has to use them. Whereas at most meets, they might have enough barbells for everybody. Maybe it's two people on a barbell. Uh, I mean, it, especially it's gotten yeah. better recently, like with just more people having more equipment. Yeah. I think, yeah, needing a rack. So we all lift out of like the, the combo racks at meets. So having a rack is important because you can't do anything but deadlift without one. Yeah. So yeah, that's probably the, the factor, but the space thing is weird. Like I was surprised to see five barbells all lined up in a row. Cause I also weightlift, like my weightlifting training is done by myself in a powerlifting gym. So nobody mm-hmm. else is doing it with mm-hmm. me. So that mm-hmm. was odd to me. And then there was just so much stuff on the ground. And I was like, I'm going to drop this barbell <laughs> wrong and it's going to fly and hit somebody. And that happens. This is my inexperience <laughs> I, showing as well. So, I mean, ideally it is, I don't, you know, um, I guess weightlifters are maybe accustomed to like knowing where to drop and how to drop and sort of being very aware of like, all right, I'm over here and I need to be careful. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's always things moving very, very quickly. So, mm-hmm. yeah, well, cool. your do awareness you wanna... has to be a little higher. <laughs> it does. Yeah. yeah. So do you think you want to do it again? Yes. Yes, I do. Awesome. I emailed my coach this weekend. and I was like, how are we going to fit weightlifting in with my powerlifting training? Is this possible? feasible what are what are we going to do about it well that is very exciting i am really excited to hear that thank you me too i'm excited to continue with these newbie gains that are still happening so (laughs) well i don't have those in powerlifting anymore (laughs) right so actually you know when i sort of uh i stopped competing seriously competing about 10 years ago or so and i still train in weightlifting but more recently especially with the pandemic when there was a period where i just I didn't have access to a weightlifting gym to do the lifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was like, oh, it's, you know, I'll do some more powerlifting style bodybuilding movements, which are fun and which I did many, many years ago before weightlifting. But it's like, oh man, I can like go up every week. Like mm-hmm. I can, I can keep making improvements. And as opposed to in, you know, whatever barbell sport you've done for a while, you're sort of like, how do I not lose that what I have and mm-hmm. maybe add a little bit of weight over the course of six months or something? Yeah. Yeah. For me right now, the strength is not the issue because the weights are relatively compared to what my powerlifting numbers are, aren't that heavy, but the technique is really hard for me. So every time I would go to the gym, I'd be like, Oh, what I did last week is now a warm up, (laughs) And it was really fun, but it like, it's also really challenging because I was like the Quinn Hennick was handling me or counting for me. And I texted him and I was like, here's my like, guess at what I'm going to do. It'll probably change. And he's like, why is it going to change? And I was like, cause every day that I go, it changes. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, but here's your best estimate. And by the time I got to the meet, it was 10 kilos higher. And he was like, okay, fine. <laughs> well, uh, you know, Whatever. and seeing your lifts, like, like you said, it is clear that the strength is there uh, and the speed is there too. I mean, you're lifting weight that for you is, is probably incredibly light. And so the speed and all that is there. And it's just, mm-hmm. yeah, now you just get to refine technique for the next 20 years. <laughs> Forever. Like the rest of us. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now the hard part comes. So. Yeah. That's a good, I think, segue to strength, right? Because mm-hmm. this is your really your area of expertise. So strength, strength training, the biology behind it. So could you define, I guess, first of all, 
what strength is and what mm-hmm. we mean by strength training. Give yeah, us sort of so general overview. Strength, as, as I like to define it, is saying like the amount of force that you can produce within certain parameters. So strength for powerlifting is being able to exert force against a barbell for a single rep in these specific lifts, right? But strength for weightlifting is the ability to, again, produce that force, but also have the technique dialed in to do this one rep at a certain weight. Um, Whereas I think strength can also be mental and emotional and stuff like that. But for what we are talking about, it is definitely the ability to exert force or create force, develop force against another object. Mm-hmm. And, and so strength training, gen- broadly, how do you define this? Uh, broadly, it's the ability to um, train in a way that creates adaptations to improve your strength, mm-hmm. kind of. And it's a very what, general definition. But. Which is perfect, right? I, I think, you know, because like you said, right, it's going to be in powerlifting, the strength you need is very different from the power, the strength you need in, in weightlifting, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there's lots of overlap, I think, but... Yeah, you guys um, squat and deadlift. We do. We do. We squat. We do lots of pulls. We, um, some programs yeah. bench. Yeah, so there's yeah. some of that. I was joking with a friend the other day. I was like, big bench, big jerk. Because <laughs> 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 my bench press is my best lift. Is and I it? was like... Mm, jerk is not the problem for me. It's definitely the clean. <laughs> so I definitely can't get the clean and I can jerk anything. So interestingly, so. and I'm not saying this will be your case because uh, you seem to be doing a better job of refining your technique early on. But when I switched over to weightlifting, bench was also my best mm-hmm. lift by far. And uh, for the first year and a half, I was like, if I can clean it, I can jerk it. Like, I'm fine. Uh, and then my clean got to a point where I realized, <laughs> oh no, that's, it's not actually the case. My jerk is just really bad. I was just real. I was worse in the clean. And so mm-hmm. then, yeah. I had, unfortunately I never really learned how to jerk really well. Uh, but I just sort of, you know, muscled through it and struggled <laughs> and, and got by for years, but yeah, a yeah. big bench. That's how I... Yeah. It can help <laughs> early it's on. Just, it's just, comf- I'm more comfortable with that kind of weight in my hands because I, bench press 120 kilos, but I definitely don't clean a jerk. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think especially switching over, there's something to be said for, uh, the physical, but also the mental aspect, right. Of like, Oh, this is, this is less than I bench. Like I've held this weight before I've had this Mm -hmm. weight over my face. Like I can put this overhead. I mean, there's something, there's that like psychological transfer maybe even. For sure. Yeah. I think that psychological thing is really important for people who are training to know that like I've held more than this or I've carried more than this. Um, because I look at, I looked at my snatch and I thought this at the meet, I was like, I don't even warm up bench at this weight. (laughs) Like it's, but it's very technique based and getting that like elbow extension before the bar starts to come down is what's hard. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. But, but that's why strength is so hard to define is because it's so specific to what it is that you're doing. Right. Mm -hmm. So like I'm strong in powerlifting, but that strength doesn't necessarily transfer super well to weightlifting. So I I really want to come back to that before we even get to that. Okay. What do we, 
What do we know about strength training and what works in strength training? I think the the main tenets of a program that we always look for or that I always look for is that it is specific to whatever goals that you have. So when someone comes to me and they're like, I want to get stronger, I'm like, all right, what is it that you want to be able to do? Not just I want to be stronger, but like, tell me what that strength looks like for you. So it's specific to their goals. It's repeatable and progressive. So that person can do that workout again and again, probably the same workout again and again, and either like somehow progresses over time insofar that like the weights get heavier or the range of motion gets larger or something is making the work that you are doing greater without it actually getting harder. So that's what I mean by progressive and it's repeatable insofar that you can do it again and again without completely fatiguing yourself and being so tired that the next day you're like, I can do nothing. Mm -hmm. So that's also not our goal. So we want it to be specific, repeatable, progressive, and um, we need you to be able to adapt to it. So that kind of rolls into the repeatable idea of like, you have to be able to recover from it and turn around and do it again. And so far that the training that we are giving you is making you better at whatever it is you're training in. So awesome. those like kind of four, four tenants. Okay. So I think there's a couple, at least I want to go into a little more detail. So you said specific to start out mm-hmm. the degree of specificity. Let's say someone comes in and both in powerlifting and weightlifting and the specificity differs a bit, but you're really looking at like, one all-out effort, right, in both mm-hmm. sports. Yep. Obviously, maybe not obviously, but it seems like we can't just train 1RMs all the time, right? So to what extent are you broadening, let's say, things like rep range? I mean, are you? Mm-hmm. do you think that there's benefits in going up to like 8, 10, 15 reps in that specific movement? Or do you think there's evidence to say that you need to be much more specific and keep it below five Mm -hmm. or something? So there's good evidence to show that having a lot of variation in training. So having a wide range of rep ranges, movements, um, metabolic systems that you're accessing and utilizing makes you, or gives you this base upon which you can build all these other adaptations. So if we think about, um, being able to sustain exercise for 30 minutes, like low steady state exercise, and we're able to sprint and we're able to lift heavy weight and we're able to move it fast. All of those things are going to make you a better athlete and make sure that once you get into a situation where you're, let's say you're tired or you're um, like you've been training for multiple days on end and you need to start accessing other things, you you aren't depleted. Right. Mm -hmm. And so having a large variety in training, both in rep ranges and movement actually makes you a better athlete. And it's a good, there's also good evidence to show that like powerlifters have this running joke that cardio kills your gains. And this is, (laughs) I think pretty prevalent throughout health and fitness. And it's not true, like to get that training effect where one influences the other, you have to be training at a really high volume and you're doing like two a days of training with endurance and strength training, most people aren't there. And so it's actually beneficial to people to be doing both 
that cardiovascular work and the strength work, no matter what sport you're in, because they supplement each other and make you a better athlete. So Mm -hmm. it's totally not the answer I want to hear about cardio, but I will trust you. (laughs) I I believe you. (laughs) Yeah. No one wants to do it because it's not fun. It's not specific to what we are doing, but we need to have that broad base in order to build up to the specificity. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we have this broader base of even cardiovascular training, which no one enjoys, unless you're crazy, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you you have to build slowly on top of those adaptations. And you can, I have it kind of conceptualized as a pyramid. If you have a really broad base of your pyramid, you can build your pyramid a lot higher and your, your max performance will be better. Mm-hmm. But if you have only three blocks in your little pyramid, you're not going to go very high. And once you start trying to add on top of that pyramid, like a spire, you get just really unstable. Mm-hmm. And so you're probably not as um, solid of an athlete mm-hmm. if you don't have that broad base. So so to sort of paraphrase and make sure I'm understanding, basically mm-hmm. you, you might advocate doing things that while they do not specifically relate to the movement, mm-hmm. because we don't live in an ideal world where you can always control everything else, you prepare yourself in a way that makes you better able to handle other stressors so that you can better utilize the training specific to your movement. Exactly. That's a really good paraphrase. Yep. Because if you, like, let's say you go to a meet, this is relevant to all of the individuals. Um, Let's say you go to a meet and you're like not planning to have to follow yourself on the ascending barbell, but all of a sudden you have to, Mm -hmm. you need to have the ability to do that, to do those repetitions over and over again, which would probably be helpful to have some more high rep, work in your program, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That will be more specific to that scenario. Whereas taking longer breaks with your singles means that you are more adapted to do other things. And it just sets you up to be successful in, um, in multiple ways. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. When I was, uh, when I'm coaching, I often like to program, especially close to a meet waves for that reason, right? Because somebody, Mm -hmm. You go up, you come back down because in a competition in weightlifting, there's a good chance you might have to just be in a situation where it's like, oh, I've got I've got one minute. I'm about to go out on the platform. And then it's like, actually, no, you have five minutes. (laughs) So now (laughs) we have to go back down and take a few more attempts. But we need to make sure you're ready for that and train for that. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, cool. I think a good example is also like I having a wide variety of training. So I was heading into this weightlifting meet and my biggest problem was that I'd get tired really quickly because I wasn't used to the movements. So if I had had more variation in my powerlifting training, that was high velocity movement and also the snatch and the clean and jerk. But let's say I just had more high velocity movement in my training then I probably would have been better adapted to handle these like fast movements repeatedly, but I could only do like six warm ups, And I was like, otherwise I'm going to wear myself out and I'm not going to be able to perform. Mm-hmm. So it's a great example of not being well prepared <laughs> by not having enough variability in your training yeah. for the sport that you're going to compete in, which is beside the point. <laughs> and I think too, though, with uh, snatch, well, with any new movement, right? The sort of mm-hmm. fatigue of concentrating on doing that. I mean, I, I have to imagine you can do yeah. at this point, a powerlifting squat, deadlift and bench without thinking about it. I don't think about it. Exactly. I actively stop thinking. Mm-hmm. Which is ideal, right? And mm-hmm. weightlifting, especially the first probably five or ten years. 
there's just a lot of thinking going on. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's taxing as well. Yeah. Yeah. Those are other adaptations that athletes have to learn and, and develop of like that mental game of being able to turn it off too. Like turn it on and turn it off. So specificity, the other one you said was repeatability. Is that one of them, mm-hmm. right? Or repeatability. Uh, so with repeatability, what are your thoughts on kind of the same workout versus varied workout? And you touched on this a little bit in the specificity mm-hmm. one, but a lot of weightlifting training and powerlifting is maybe similar, but weightlifting training at its core, I think, needs to be really monotonous. And I think people struggle with that. My thinking is a lot of programs I see now introduce maybe a little more variation than would be ideal Mm -hmm. in an effort to make it look like you're getting your money's worth, for one, but also make it look like to help counter boredom, right? Which is also probably Mm -hmm. important, right? Even if it's not working toward your goal, if somebody gets burned out, then they've totally, (laughs) you know. Then you're not adapting at all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what are, you know, what are your thoughts on that tension between repeatability versus needing to be specific? Yeah. So I think there are ways to, so how, how I program for my athletes is like, we are going to do the same thing each week until it stops working. But there's a lot of variation within that week, which is fine. Um, But you need that repeatability partially because there's like two things that are going on. You have the specificity to impose demand. So you're going to get better at whatever you're doing, right? So you're hopefully going to be getting better through that block of training. But you also have the repeated bout effect. So the repeated bout effect is where every time you do a movement, it like you adapt to it less, but you're still building adaptations over time. So you need the variability to overcome the repeated bout effect, because if you don't have variability, then like doing the same thing over and over again, isn't actually going to make you any better, but we can run out whatever adaptation we're going to gain from it for four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks for however long you're going to be able to make adaptations on it. But each adaptation that you get, or each time you see it, you'll get less and less better at it Mm -hmm. or the, the gains you get will be smaller. Mm -hmm. And so you have to overcome kind of that. So I think it's really important to have a repeated program because that's how our body adapts is it's like, I have seen this before. I know I'm going to see it again. Well, your body doesn't know it's going to see it again, but I've seen this before. It sucked last time I'm going to adapt. So it sucks less if I have to do it again. Mm -hmm. Right. So this kind of a related question. Is there a place then for like a one-off in a program? Like let's say uh, you're, you're doing a training program and out of an eight-week program, there's mm-hmm. one day where you do one movement, and you never, you've never done it before, you never do it subsequently. Is there a place for something like that? I think the, the gain that you would get from that would probably be more mental than physiological. So where I would see that being useful is if you had an athlete who was really nervous about something, um, and you had them do like a movement one day that they'd never done before, to like either prove that they can do it or tell them that it's okay to move in this way or teach them a cue. That's probably a little bit more of where I would see that. But the adaptation that you would get from that would be relatively small compared to the overall adaptation that you would be gaining from the repeated things that you're doing and the specific things that you're doing. So specificity, repeatability, 
Progressive overload, you mentioned, is a big one. And that's mm -hmm. probably the one that I've been most familiar with, just sort of poking mm -hmm. around strength training research. But uh, maybe you could define it a little more. Yeah. Yeah. So we, so at Barbell Medicine, we call it progressive loading um, because we feel that overload doesn't really cover exactly what we're trying to get at because we don't, the workout is not necessarily supposed to get harder. Like your effort level should stay the same but you should be doing more work in some way. So progressively loading something means that over time, you're going to be doing more work for the same amount of effort. And we want that to happen because that means that you have adapted to the previous training. So we are looking for the training to meet you where you are at in your training. So, and that also means that you can technically like go backwards in training. So let's say you train, so let's talk about progressive overload first or progressive loading first. So progressive loading, let's say I take three sets of five on back squat at RPE eight. And I say, yep, that was an RPE eight. And then the next week I can do three sets of five at RPE seven on back squat. That means that I have adapted and the weight that I have on the bar is appears easier to me. So in order to get to that RPE eight, I have to do more work. I either have to put more weight on the bar or I have to do another set, right? And maybe that set will be sufficient, maybe not. And so the goal is to meet the, the lifter where they are in their set of adaptations and the training matches you. So that's why I don't know how often RPE is used in weightlifting, but it's used very commonly in powerlifting. Mm-hmm. Um, so this rate of perceived exertion lets us kind of like work with our training. So that's auto-regulation is another thing that we think is really important in programming mm -hmm. or that I think is really important in programming. And so, but on the other side, when like, let's say you've been training for six weeks, you feel great. And then you get the stomach flu and you can't train for a week and a half because if you do, you puke. So then you go back to the gym and you're like, all right, I don't know where I'm going to be, but I want my workout to be about the same difficulty as it was previously. And so you're going to show up and you're going to do whatever it is that gets you to that correct difficulty. And it will probably be less than where you were a week and a half prior. So that's kind of where we're getting with progressive loading is that it's tailored to what you can do right now. And mm -hmm. auto-regulation kind of falls under that, falls next to it. It could be its own tenant, but auto-regulation is the ability to just say, like, this is what I can do today, and this is, um, like, kind of where my body says is good enough. Mm -hmm. So, And are you using similar principles in your own training in terms of, like, trying to reach that level of exertion or effort while increasing things? Mm -hmm. Yes. So each week I'll do... Like we'll use the same back squat example. So the last three weeks I've been doing back squats for sets of sets of six at RPE eight. I started off at 150 kilos, got up to by the end of the block, 160 kilos. So each week I added five kilos. I run three week blocks each week. I added five kilos. It stayed at RPE eight. So the work I was doing was greater, but the exertion I was, or the, effort I was putting out was the same. Mm -hmm. So sort of a, a general question. 
And I don't know how much in weightlifting people use RPE. I have seen some coaches use it, and I, I've seen others who, who didn't. Certainly when I was coming up, it wasn't, I don't think it was like a, a term, but we're also going back now, you know, a long time. Probably the closest before RPE was widely used was just acknowledging like, all right, go to a daily max or daily heavy single, things like that, which I think mm -hmm. is a related idea of like, there's not a set number written, but there is a set intensity written mm -hmm. um, or a set yeah. amount of exertion. Yeah. Um, and I think how? with weightlifting, because you're not, it's not max effort in like, like powerlifting is max effort in like, I can literally do no more. Mm -hmm. And weightlifting is like, I can do no more before my technique falls completely apart. And I'm only getting a couple of lifts mm -hmm. for the set that I had programmed. So, mm -hmm. yeah. How, how do you work with an athlete to uh, develop a vocabulary around the RPE system because mm -hmm. when I've tried to use it in the past, especially with people unfamiliar with the scale or beginners, it's it's the wild west in terms of like, is this a two? Is this an eight? Is this a ten? Like, mm -hmm. yeah. So there's a couple couple things I like to do. I like to first start with like, uh, if the person has never seen RPE before, I'm like, all right, what's your what's the heaviest thing you've ever moved for squat? Like, can you remember what that feels like? And you remember like grinding through that and how hard that was, that's a 10 and like kind of try and give them an idea of what it is. And then over time, we also use RPE in like a reps and reserve kind of an idea. And we can compare the two, which I think can be harder to do in weightlifting, but in powerlifting, it's very consistent in saying like RPE seven is kind of like reps and like three reps in reserve. You can do three more. So that's a helpful way to kind of conceptualize it. But I do think that it is a, it's a learning curve mm -hmm. for a lot of athletes. And I think it's an important learning cur curve to have for athletes because it's like, all right, we need you to be recognizing how much effort you're putting in so that you aren't completely exhausting yourself. And you can communicate that with the coach of being like, Hey, this is starting to get hard. Like I need to like pivot or turn or like change something about my training. So we say, or like, I like to tell my athletes, I want you to be consistent about what you call an eight week to week. I don't actually care if your RPE eight would be an RPE eight for everybody else. I want to know what RPE eight is for you. And if you feel like that was pretty hard, but you could still maybe do a little bit more, we're going to call that an eight. And I want you to be consistent week to week about what that is. And what that allows a coach to do is say like, all right, so what this person calls an RP8 seems to do really well for them over time to create adaptation. Like we're hitting the, these RPEs and that means we're hitting percentages and intensities that are helping us develop tra our training. And that's where like the individuality of working with an athlete comes in of like learning how that athlete rates at RPE eight. And so we want people, I want people to be very accurate and precise if they can be, but I would prefer that people are like just repeatable week to week. And we're not calling what is actually an eight or what that person should be perceiving as an eight. Also a seven, also a 10, also something else. So we don't want them calling the same thing, a bunch of things. Mm -hmm. And we also don't want people saying like, all right, I took RPE seven, nine and 10, and I'm going to call them all at eight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, 
because then the accuracy that we can like predict how heavy that set actually was gets more challenging. So, and over time people are going to get better at it. So I like to talk about this as um, over time, you're going to like, some days you'll overshoot, some days you'll undershoot. It'll probably be okay altogether. And over time, the amount that you overshoot and undershoot will get smaller as you learn to use RPE more and more. And there will be times where that gets reset and you'll have to like kind of refigure it out. So if you haven't taken an RPE seven in a really long time, you're going to have to learn what a seven feels like to you again. And there are other ways to help teach it. You can use velocity tracking to kind of like give yourself more information. If we're looking at exertion and we really want to know how the athlete feels, I don't think that's super helpful, but it can be helpful for certain scenarios. And then you can also look at bar speed. If a bar is slowing down a little bit, we'll often be like, yeah, that's probably an eight. If a bar is slowing down a lot, it's probably a nine. If a bar is kind of slowing down, but not really, it's probably a seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everyone knows what an RPE 10 looks like. So, <laughs> Yes. So I like that idea of basically starting out, go for consistency, and then over time, mm-hmm. you'll get yeah. the accuracy. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. So, and the last, sorry, go on. It's just a shared language between you and your coach. It doesn't actually mean anything. It's just saying like, what I did today was hard enough. Yeah. And that's all you need to know. So Mm -hmm. it's, we like to pretend this is a perfect science and it's not. (laughs) Humans are not perfect like that. No, no. If only they were. So the last piece you mentioned was recovery, basically, the ability mm-hmm. to recover from workout to workout. Um, and I feel like that could easily, very easily be its own discussion. But I guess sort of briefly what I'm wondering is, to what extent do you see people are over or under training? Or are we all, are we too concerned about these things? And are there ways that you can evaluate recovery workout to workout in strength training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you, the way I like to think about recovery is um, your ability to train again soon. Right. Um, And we expect there to be some drop off in your ability to recover or your ability to perform immediately after. And we can think about recovery, both like intraset, interset, intra-workout, intra-workout, and then, like, across the block. So for for what we are talking about, we want – let's just look at from workout to workout. We want you to be able to – in order to maximize your recovery, we want you eating enough, sleeping enough, and managing stress in any way that you can. Stress is never going to go away. We all have regular lives for the most of us. It's not going to go away. Where most people are worried about undertraining or overtraining, if you're adapting to your training, you are probably not undertraining. If you are continually making gains, maybe not every week, but over time you are continuing to make changes in your program and you're continuing to get stronger and you're progressing towards the goals that you have, your training is probably appropriately matched. People worry about overtraining a lot because I'm not sure why, but it's really hard to be overtrained. I guess it makes people feel good that they're like, I'm working so hard that I can't keep up, where I find that most people probably just need better sleeping habits, 
better eating habits and need to find ways to manage stress in their life better. And that's a hard thing to tell people to do because stress is so nebulous Mm -hmm. as a term. So uh, if over time you are making gains, like long-term you're making gains, your programming is probably decent enough. Mm -hmm. But if each week you're going down, like your performance is decreasing each week, then probably you need to be evaluating what is happening in your training. And you are probably training too much, but I wouldn't call it overtraining. So um, you're just not training in a way that is recoverable. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. so people can do more training than they can recover from without actually doing what you would call overtraining, basically. Yeah. So overtraining would be like you are training so much that you like – once you start to remove some of that fatigue that has built up, you're still not creating adaptation, Mm -hmm. right? So we are creating adaptation all the time. No matter what we do, we're adapting to the stimulus that we give our body, whether that is positive or negative. And so if you can't recover from it week to week, but at the end you take away that stimulus and all of the adaptations that you've built up, have and the fatigue built bleeds off and we can now realize those adaptations then you are still adapting but we just needed to remove some of the fatigue but overtraining would be like you didn't even make gains because you didn't have enough energy to create like the the adaptation itself or change the muscular or the physiological structure to make the adaptation mm-hmm. so. gotcha Okay, that's interesting. Very interesting. So, yeah. so basically, yeah, if you back off and things go go better, you were probably okay. Uh, mm-hmm. You were just a little fatigued. If you back off and you're still a wreck, maybe it was a bit too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think if if you recognize that things are going poorly for multiple weeks on end, yeah, back off the training a little bit and see what happens. Like it's mm-hmm. um, more does not always equal better. <laughs> And um, I think that can be really hard for athletes to realize that like, if I do more, I'll be better. And it's like, mm-hmm. mm, maybe if you do less <laughs> and you just do it more intelligently, mm-hmm. you'll be better. So, so you mentioned uh, at the start time between sets. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any truth to the idea that for like complete optimal power output, you want between three and five minutes of rest or, or is it totally up in the air? Does it vary? Uh, It depends on all of the adaptations you have on board. So going back to the variability, if you've been doing a lot of work that trains that metabolic system of replenishing your uh, muscle, like, I don't want to get too deep into the physiology, but like replenishing the stores that you have in your muscles to let you do that work, the ATP, then you're probably fine doing it on like a three to four minute or a two to four minute. Mm-hmm. interval um but we say somewhere between three to five minutes is necessary to replenish those stores and get as much as you can out of it if you waited for 10 minutes you'd have more mm-hmm. but we see like it's like this um curve that approaches the limit like you once you get most of the way there like just go <laughs> but yeah so this is another application for having more variability and or variation in your training is is that you're more capable of training repeatedly or like training quickly right Mm -hmm. so you don't have to take as much time between sets to 
to recover. All right, so we've got some basics for strength training. And so now to, to go back to something you mentioned earlier about powerlifting and weightlifting, um, there is kind of a prevailing idea that it's hard to go from powerlifting to weightlifting, harder, let's say, to go from powerlifting to weightlifting, then from weightlifting to powerlifting. Uh, having said that, Shane Hammond was a powerlifter who squatted like a thousand pounds before transitioning over to weightlifting, and his American records still stand. Is so? I think that a lot of the the concern is that in powerlifting you're not training for speed or explosiveness. So, mm-hmm. and a lot of people do have this idea that like if you get strong, that strength is can be incompatible with speed and explosiveness. So, what do we what do we really know about training for strength? And training for explosiveness. And actually, if I just like a little kind of aside, I guess, is a lot of times when I'm reading, it seems like people are talking about strength in terms of moving weight and speed and explosiveness in terms of moving body weight. And I want to say, guys, we have to fucking move weight fast. Like (laughs) this is, you know, so maybe you can help out here. Yeah. I think that for people who are trying to get better at weightlifting, you it's this same idea of it needs to be specific. So it is totally possible to get strong and fast, but the reason that powerlifters struggle going from powerlifting to weightlifting is that we don't have that strength module on board, right? Or like that speed module on board. We have the strength, um, but and we are often trying to move the weight that we have as fast as possible. But the adaptation is just slightly different. You can get strong and, and be fast, but it's just like how you train it. Right. So if, if you train so that like the, the speed of a powerlifting barbell is much slower than the speed of a weightlifting barbell and that speed just doesn't transfer the same way. So there, there is transference from the strength that you have in powerlifting to the strength that you have in weightlifting it's just not as good of a match. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's possible to get strong and fast. Mm-hmm. You just have to train that way. So so what would you recommend then if someone's like, well, I want to, I need to get strong, but I need to get fast too. Are there, are there specific things you would recommend? Again, I would recommend a, a wide variety of movements and weight ranges that are probably more specific to weightlifting. So you still want that weight moving fast, like probably taking one RM grinders isn't going to be helpful, but, um, moving heavy weight quickly will be helpful. What about training for men versus training for women? I know this is like a big area for you and you've written, uh, an excellent series about, uh, training in the menstrual cycle, for example, in weightlifting, I think there's a lot of misconception in weightlifting. I will say, right. Like in both barbell sports, I think at the very least we're in sports that, uh, celebrate women in sports that celebrate strong women. Right. And that's great. But there are also lots of myths around what they can and cannot do and whatnot. In weightlifting, one of the ones I hear most often is women can handle more volume and I, and nobody's ever citing anything specific. They're just saying, Oh, well, athletes from X country or Y country have found that they can do, you know, four week intense cycles and then a back off week versus men who can only do three week intense cycles and then a Mm -hmm. back off week. So yeah. What do we know about training for men and women? What are some of the myths you want to explode or, or what is, are there, is there any truth to any of the things that sort of float Mm -hmm. around in, in pop culture training? 
Yeah. So the first first one that you mentioned, there is some, and I say some very very loosely, some evidence to show that women are less fatigable than men, and it seems to be related to blood vessel um, like capillary density. Our capillary density is higher than it is for men because we have smaller bodies in general. The problem is, is that that's not how we train athletes. We train athletes based on how they perform. And so if I was to get two athletes and let's say they're fraternal twins, one male, one female, or one man, one woman, and they have had the exact same sport experience, the exact same upbringing, let's say their genetics are close enough that we can call them identical, even though I know they're not, but hypotheticals. If both of those athletes came to me with the same goals and they're like, I want to get stronger, I would put them on basically the same program. There's nothing that I would say right off the bat that this woman for sure can handle more volume. If she shows that she can handle more volume and is less fatigable, then we will do that. But just by chatting with someone and right off the bat, I'm like, there's no difference that I can make like across the board that says, yep, women are going to be less fatigable. So that's the first one that I hear. I hear that one a lot too. And it's fine if that's how it falls out. If once we start training, that's what we see for that specific woman. Great. But it's not an across the board kind of thing. I'm actually one of those women who can handle stupid amounts of volume and can rep really close to her max. Um, But then the max doesn't move any higher. It's annoying, but it's just how I am. And nothing really changes about my training. The same four core principles are still there. But the, the one that really always gets me that I hear a lot is that one, women are not going to get as strong as men, which is like an issue in and of itself. And so we'll explain like why that's an issue first. So the, the idea that when you have two people who start training, women will not get as strong as men is actually false because women have a tendency to actually increase their strength more. They have a greater rate of strength development over time than men do, especially at the beginning. And we think, well, I think this is partially due to the fact that uh, women are less encouraged or not as highly encouraged to participate in sports at a young age and they're not encouraged to be as active as their male counterparts. So they actually don't have as many adaptations on board to help them in sports. And so their newbie gains are just bigger, right? Mm -hmm. So whatever adaptation they're receiving is bigger. So if you look at the rate of, this is especially seen in women's bench press in powerlifting. Um, If you look at the rate of women's bench press when they start, it actually increases at a higher rate than men's does. The Numbers are smaller because typically on average women are smaller, but in reality, the, the percentages are bigger and women are maker, making bigger gains relative to their body size than men are. And then the last thing that the myth that I hear a lot that just grinds my gears is that men respond better to training than women do. And the, the last example aside with the bench press, there was a study by Atianen, I think is how you say the name, at all that shows that if you give, they gave like 500 people the same training program, asked them all to do it, um, men and women. And it wasn't like women got this much stronger and then men got twice as strong as that. 
it was um, some people responded really, really well to that training. Some people got weaker on that training and men and women were interspersed between all of the individuals. So some women responded really well and some men responded really well. And then there were men and women who didn't respond well. So it's less dependent on sex and more dependent on something else that we don't see and it's not attached to sex. Mm-hmm. Um, so this idea of men have testosterone, so they respond to strength training better is actually false. Mm-hmm. Testosterone is actually not an indicator of strength and it's a very poor indicator in barbell sports. Like they've measured testosterone levels and the best of the best actually don't have the highest testosterone. Mm-hmm. So, but that is probably any more than that is probably beyond my scope in terms of talking about testosterone, <laughs> but <laughs> Estrogen. I can talk all day about estrogen. <laughs> so, so before we move on to sort of sum mm-hmm. up, right, like, you know, athletes come to you and, and athletes come to any coach, right? And rather mm-hmm. than looking at them and thinking, all right, uh, we've got a woman, we've got a man, we've got to sort of divide up training programs. There is no evidence to suggest you should base that training initially on whatever they are, as opposed, at, instead you should sort of move forward and see how they respond as an individual. Mm-hmm. Some people respond mm-hmm. to volume. Some people will not respond to volume. Basically mm-hmm. there's nothing that you're, that you know of that says we, we need to train women in a specific way. No, no, there there's evidence to show like that there are trends, but if you're working individually with a client, then you don't need to rely on the trend. You have the client in front of you and you want to see how they respond. Right. And even with training programs, so if you were to get a training program from someone and you don't have a one-on-one coach and you're like, all right, I'm going to run this training program, run it as written. Just because you are male or female doesn't mean that you need to change anything about that program to fit you better. Run the training program as it is because if it's a good training program, it's repeatable, it's specific, it's recoverable, and it's auto-regulated. Mm-hmm. And that will be sufficient to match it to you. A related point, what do we know about women's training and their menstrual cycles? And mm-hmm. I guess as a subset, uh, women who are on uh, birth control birth or women control. who are not on birth control. Yeah. So this is kind of a longer conversation. So I'm going to start with how we arrived at this kind of idea that the menstrual cycle has an impact on training. So women's cycle, let's start with the menstrual cycle. The menstrual cycle is a cycle that happens of our natural hormones that rise and fall over the course of approximately 28 days. And um, the two main hormones that we're looking at are estrogen and progesterone. It has been shown in rat studies and mouse studies that the application of exogenous estrogen can increase the body's ability to protect the muscles. And so you lose less muscle mass, you are capable of training more, and you get more gains out of whatever training that you're doing. The other thing that's happening, so what's happening during the menstrual cycle is you have this rise in estrogen and progesterone. And in the first half of your menstrual cycle, so when you start your period, your estrogen is starting to increase over time and it slowly increases through the entire first half of your menstrual cycle, which we call the follicular phase. 
And so during this follicular phase, you're having an increase in estrogen and it peaks right before ovulation. Ovulation is approximately days 14 to 16. Um, and that is when your body releases an egg and you are fertile. Then estrogen drops again in the luteal phase, which is the second half as you are approaching your period. Um, so after ovulation, you're approaching your period and then it kind of does this like small peak. And at the same time, so progesterone, this entire follicular phase has been very, very quiet. And then it slowly rises up during the middle of the luteal phase. So during the luteal phase, like mid luteal phase, you have higher estrogen and higher progesterone. And at the end you have, they both kind of drop off again. So you have this cyclical rise and fall. Estrogen has two peaks and progesterone has one that over the course of an entire training program, you are kind of, this is what you're seeing. And so the increase that we see in progesterone, progesterone is thought to have a catabolic effect. It breaks things down. Um, whereas estrogen is thought to be more protective or anabolic. So when you have this higher progesterone in the middle part of the luteal phase, you have like this, there's this thought that this is when you are at your weakest, right? And then when your hormones are lowest during your period, which is when they are lowest, their estrogen is starting to increase. That's actually when you're at your strongest. And that's kind of the thought. So there's been studies where they take mice and they remove their ovaries. And so they have no estrogen cycling and then they apply this exogenous estrogen and the muscle wasting and um, loss of strength that happens to these mice once you remove their ovaries is replenished once you give them that exogenous estrogen. So that's kind of where this idea is coming from is we're comparing this like drop in estrogen that happens during the menstrual cycle to this drop in estrogen that happens during the like this overectomy in this mouse. And also where we're seeing this is coming from menopause research. And when women hit menopause, they also lose um, that naturally cycling estrogen and progesterone. And we ought at the same time see that women who have gone through menopause show a decrease in muscle size and strength. And what is not shown in a lot of this research is that is also when women become much less active. So Hitting menopause uh, means that women are much more likely to just be less active. So we don't know actually if it's if it's the estrogen or the lack thereof or the lack of activity, right? And so the other thing that's happening at this same time is when we're looking at estrogen in the menstrual cycle, it's dropping and it drops to a, to this low where we we're losing this protective effect. But what we aren't seeing. <laughs> is that uh, it's not dropping as low as it is during like these overectomies or during menopause. Menopause and overectomies is like the complete cessation of that, close to the complete cessation of that hormone. And it's for a chronic period, right? It's for months, years, much longer. Whereas during the menstrual cycle, it's like maybe a week. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of talk about like why this is a People are like, oh, this is an issue. Like, we need to be careful and, like, make sure that women are 
not overexerting themselves during any period of their training. Probably not the problem we need to be worrying about, but it is a common narrative. And so when we look at hormone levels for hormone concentrations for women across their menstrual cycle and their strength across their menstrual cycle, we see these big drops in hormones that happen across the menstrual cycle, but we don't see similar decreases in strength. So if estrogen was directly related to women's muscle strength, we would see a large decrease in uh, women's muscle strength at the same time that we saw a large decrease in women's estrogen. And we don't see that. Uh, We see like pretty consistent strength levels for women across a block or across a, a menstrual cycle and these like wildly changing estrogen levels. So it's probably not estrogen. There is some thought that there is some central fatigue that is happening that's occurring that is affecting women's ability to produce strength, but it's it's probably not estrogen. And this is when you're looking at like a broad base of research. There are definitely women who experience these changes during the menstrual cycle where they have like major changes in their ability to perform, in their ability to recover across their menstrual cycle. And in no way do I want to undermine their experiences or say that their experiences are not true. It's when we're talking about large-scale population-based recommendations, we recommend, we as the scientific community who cares about this specific problem in this population, we recommend taking a very individualized approach. If you are training and you don't notice a difference, don't worry about it. Don't periodize your training based on your menstrual cycle because ultimately it's one, really hard to tell what part of your menstrual cycle you're in. Most women know if they're in their follicular phase or their luteal phase because they know if they have had their period. So your period is a very obvious sign. And then for women, you can easily track ovulation. It's pretty the ovulation strips that you can take and pee on are decently accurate. And so women can tell what phase they're in, but they don't know their exact hormone levels. And we also know that hormone levels are not directly correlated to strength. So it's like, you're probably just taking in a ton of extra information that really doesn't help your programming. Auto-regulation is probably going to be better. So Mm -hmm. if you can auto-regulate your program, that's probably more effective because all of the things that are encompassed by auto-regulation are also, well, the period is also lumped in with that, right? So stress, uh, traffic on the way to the gym, relationships with other people, your job, all of those things cause stress that will affect training. Your menstrual cycle might also cause stress that will in some way affect training, whether that's sleeping or uh, eating differently or something like that. All of those things are part of that, but are probably, it's probably just fine to talk about it within autoregulation. So that's the menstrual cycle. Most of the research that has been done has been done on the oral contraceptive pill. So that's what we're going to talk about. Women who are on the IUD, women who are on the patch or on the, I don't remember the name, but there's an arm insert as well. All of those have their own effects. Birth can, I think some of the things that women worry about with the menstrual cycle is that or with birth control is weight gain. The only one that has been shown scientifically to cause weight gain is the one that is inserted in your arm. Um, None of the other birth controls reliably cause weight gain. 
uh, some women experience weight loss, some women experience no weight change. So there are a lot of confounding factors with that. But with birth control and performance, before I go any further, if your coach is telling you to come off your birth control because it's making you weak, get a new coach. (laughs) Because one, that person should not be giving you that kind of medical advice. And two, um, they're wrong. So (laughs) training around your menstrual or training with birth control is very individualized. So what birth control does, there's like two different kinds of oral contraceptive pills. We have monophasic and triphasic. And that's just like the different, it changes the amount of hormones that are in the pill. And there are many different concentrations of hormones. So if we just lump all of those together, there is some evidence that points to the idea that naturally menstruating women are stronger than their counterparts who are on birth control. The studies that show this are not super great. The evidence isn't super strong. And there are a lot of women who like don't actually experience these things. Um, and what we need to be doing is finding an individualized approach. The other thing I like to tell women is if you have never had a baby, I have never had a baby, um, but I hear that babies are a lot of work. Um, and I also hear that getting pregnant is really hard and being pregnant can be very challenging. So if you're worried about your birth control affecting your training and you're using your birth control as a way to prevent a child, um, from coming into your life in that way, then stay on your birth control because a child will have a much bigger effect than your birth control will. That being said, I also want women to advocate for themselves when they go to see their physician and say like, this isn't working for me. I need a different birth control. And it is fine to have that conversation with your provider. And I encourage women to do so. So overall, there is some evidence that points to it. It's not very strong. There's a lot of evidence that doesn't point to that idea. And because the evidence isn't very good for either, we recommend this individualized approach that says like, you need to find what works for you. We have no broad-based population-based recommendations at this moment. With more evidence, that might change. But birth control is used for a lot more than just menstrual cycle like inhibition or like many women just don't want to have to deal with it. So they take birth control, which is fine. And then many women are trying to prevent pregnancy. But there are a lot of other reasons to take birth control. And those health related reasons come first because you're human first and an athlete second. And I know a lot of athletes don't feel that way. They feel that their identity is very much so tied to being an athlete, mm-hmm. but your human condition also matters mm-hmm. and probably matters more. That was a lot on the menstrual cycle. Do you have questions about that? Is there anything that was unclear? It's very clear. I will say that if you want to read even more, you should definitely check out, people should definitely check out the four-part series you wrote. Um, mm-hmm. I do, as I'm sort of processing, I, I do just want to sum up some of the things. So basically, similar to what you said for training men versus women, right? Athletes come into the gym, and there is no evidence to suggest that you need to say, oh, this person's a man, We need to, here's your man program, this person's a woman, here's your woman program. Like basically, mm-hmm. strength training principles apply broadly. And then look individually, how is this person responding? Mm-hmm. Similarly, dealing with uh, people who menstruate, right? They come in, 
There is no reason to say, ah, well, you're in the follicular stage. We need to train this way. You're in the, I've already forgotten the second phase. I'm sorry. Luteal. <laughs> Luteal phase. I was going to say leucine. I was like, that's an amino acid. That's not right. <laughs> uh, there's no reason to say starting out, people should modify training based on a menstrual cycle. Unless they get to a point where individually you realize, mm -hmm. okay, here is how, and as a coach, you need to listen to your athlete and, try, and as an athlete, listen to yourself and realize, okay, I am part of this cohort that is affected this way or that way. But otherwise, mm -hmm. the idea that there is some special training for half the population, there is no evidence to support this, essentially. And it's a much mm -hmm. more individualized approach. Is that, yeah. am I being accurate in saying all this? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Especially for barbell sports when so there is there are metabolic differences that happen during those two phases but typically what we suggest is those are kind of when you start to get those cravings eat a snack <laughs> it's okay you can have a snack mm -hmm. um, usually 100 to 200 calories is the difference and that is sufficient to make up for it especially with um, athletes who are training a lot. So uh, anyone with uh, an idea that there are some special ways to train women or athletes who are menstruating is just making it up, basically. It's mm -hmm. just not, yeah. there's no evidence. And I, interestingly, in your last, in the last part of the series you wrote, you talk about some of the studies. And while the studies are interesting, I think what's most interesting is your discussion of how problematic the studies that even show effects are, right? The, mm -hmm. and the, a lot of them are, I don't want to say poorly designed because there were researchers who worked hard on that, but it's very hard to design. I mean, you, you know, it's very hard to yeah. define these sorts of, to, to design these sorts of studies. Um, and they have limited populations, limited funds and whatnot, but mm -hmm. also how many studies deal with untrained populations mm -hmm. too, which complicates them. And I didn't realize how many studies dealt with unilateral movements and, you know, <laughs> Does one leg get struck? It's just nutty. And again, you know, we don't need to get into it too much here, but looking at strength differences based around the hormonal cycle by training two sides differently, it seems, you know, counterintuitive. And I appreciate that you discuss why that might be a problem, a big problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard. I, as someone who has done a lot of research myself, it is hard to design these studies. It takes mm -hmm. a lot of time. I think these researchers maybe need more real world experience in programming, <laughs> which is fine. I do not expect every researcher to have that background, um, but consulting on that would be helpful probably in this scenario. Mm -hmm. I think also kind of going back to something that you said was that women who experience this and who identify that they are part of this cohort that has this genotype or they respond this way. That is great. And it is awesome to tell your story. And I fully encourage women to tell their story, but I often will tell women other people's experience is not your diagnosis. So like what other people are experiencing doesn't mean that's what's going on with you just because that's what they felt. And I think that a lot of people will try and be like, Oh, this is what's happening to me. So it must be what's happening to you. Mm -hmm. And that can be really dangerous for people. And the people who are, who have programs that are specifically written for women are trying to sell you something. And I think it is, this is like my biggest pet peeve with social media is there are these people who use this fear mongering around the menstrual cycle, around other insecurities that women have about their bodies. 
and say like, oh, you're a woman, you have these insecurities? Here, let me sell you this thing that you actually don't need. Mm-hmm. And that is a, a huge pet peeve of mine. And so if someone is telling you that you are special and you need something special for your training because uh, you're a woman, I would question that very hard and ask other people who are also experts in the, in the, in the, in women's fitness mm-hmm. about that mm-hmm. because most women do not need a special training program. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, and I think one of the conclusions, so again, I know I keep pushing it, but people should read the series. If you're too lazy to read the whole series, at the very least read the conclusions that you have in part four, mm-hmm. but to read what you just said and to mention one of the conclusions, right? Like, your individual experience needs to be accounted for, right? Like trust your, your own experience, but you mm-hmm. know, coaches shouldn't assume that because everyone falls in this group that, ah, well, they need something special, right? But mm-hmm. that's not to discount individuals who do respond in different ways, mm-hmm. but also there uh, by subscribing to these myths, right? We create a narrative of like, and this has been a narrative since the beginning of women in sports, I think, that like women are special and fragile and need to be taken care of in a special way and we'll hurt them if we train them too hard. So it creates a sort of barrier to entry, right? Oh, shit, mm-hmm. like, you know, I don't want to train because I might, you know, any number of reasons that make mm-hmm. training seem more opaque and more complex and more difficult than it really is. And the last thing you want to do is prevent people from getting involved in a sport or a bobble sport because they think there's some special training program they need because they are menstruating individuals. Yeah, exactly. I agree it completely. Yeah. The fragility narratives that surround women's fitness make me want to tear my own hair out. So <laughs> I'm not well, violent by the way. We, we take it out in the bar, right? That's where yes. we, we experience <laughs> yes. our, our efforts and aggression. So if it's okay with you, I want to go through some of these questions that we got from mm-hmm. patrons. So I'll just go through these one by one, but the first one, uh, how long do athletes keep their strength after a strength block? And I think for weightlifters, this is especially... So powerlifters are always in a strength block, right? Your mm. goal is strength. Yeah, kind of. Weightlifters, and you know, I'm, feel free to add nuance to that. I don't want to mm-hmm. paint you all with a broad brush. But weightlifters, there is this... It's not uncommon to be working in a strength block and to then switch over to maybe an explosiveness or more technique-oriented block of training. Mm-hmm. So when you're switching over, right, like how long can we expect to keep strength gains? I I don't think that there's a, a set number of like time, right? So each person, again, is going to be individual. But I do want to like comment on this idea of like those strength gains that you made are still being used as you enter into this next block, because you brought those adaptations on board and they're supporting whatever you are now doing. And so while you might be six weeks from now, less good at your strength block, like you might have to build back up. It doesn't mean that the adaptations that you accrued are gone, but they're probably adding to something else. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that that the way of thinking about that, it should just be a little bit different of that strength doesn't disappear. You just become less good at showing it off, which is part of what strength is, is being able to show these adaptations that you've accrued. And Mm -hmm. if you can show them, you can show them immediately after, but just because you can't show them immediately after doesn't mean that everything that you did during that block was just like, well, it was for nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why this like, also, once you get into that 
explosiveness or technique focused block, you're still using everything you have gained and that actually takes less to hold on to what you've gained than it does to, to like build new adaptations. Right. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of the people who have been, who were unable to train during the pandemic, it's not like you came back to the gym and you were absolutely terrible Mm -hmm. and you were back at your beginner stage, right? You were weaker or, um, less capable of showing those adaptations, but you brought them back on board much faster. Mm-hmm. So you progressed back up to whatever strength you were at much more quickly than originally you would have, mm-hmm. um, or than it took you to originally get there, right? So let's say it took you three years to be able to squat 170 kilos. And then after the pandemic, you're like, hmm, cool, I can only squat 150. And I have to work back up to 170. And it didn't take you three years to get back to 170. Mm-hmm. It took you a couple months, right? Mm-hmm. So those adaptations don't just go away. They just maybe aren't at the forefront. Okay. And so to, to kind of put it in a weightlifting perspective, the idea that like during a strength block, right, you, you maybe are trying to show off a 1RM back squat or something, right? Mm-hmm in your competitive phase that doesn't matter right like we don't compete in a one rm back squat we compete in snatch and clean and jerk so maybe you can't do that weight but it's that you're saying like that strength gain is now being funneled into a different training style essentially a different Mm -hmm. focus basically and the point is snatch and clean and jerk yeah so the strength that you gain from doing your one rm back squat training prepares you to now build more adaptations in probably your clean, right? Mm-hmm. Or your snatch, because those aren't the most similar movements to the back squat. There was a question on uh, tailoring strength to women's menstrual cycle, which you, I think, covered really excellently. Covered. Then a question about pre-session work and post-session work. So warm-up mm-hmm. versus stretching, and if you had to prioritize one, <laughs> which which is great, because, right, I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who love warm-ups and stretching, uh, I know lots of people who do not love warm-ups and stretching. So if you had to choose one, which would it be? And, and I guess if you want to expand on that, why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so i choose warm-ups if mm-hmm. I had to choose. Um, and I think that the warm-up should look like what you're going to do in training. And I don't mm-hmm. think that this is all that different to what most weightlifters probably believe. But if you're going to warm up for your snatch you should probably be doing snatches for your warm-up and i think a lot of the other things that are done i think they're more prevalent in powerlifting like there's a lot of theraguns there's a lot of rolling around on foam rollers which oh there's a lot of that weightlifting too okay cool all of that is fine if it makes you feel better it's probably not doing what you think it's doing but if it makes you feel better it makes you feel more ready that's great but most people don't have the amount of time that it takes to do 20 minutes of that plus a warm up and do their whole workout. So what I would suggest is just start with the bar, start snatching, then do your workout and then go home. Mm-hmm. Make it short and simple. The other stuff doesn't matter all that much. It really doesn't improve your ability to one recover to warm up better. I promise you that foam rolling doesn't actually get your blood flowing more. <laughs> um, it just brings it to the, to the skin, mm-hmm. which isn't actually helping your muscles. So, but if it feels good, again, going back to this like personal experience, we don't want to invalidate that. But what the research shows for like broad-based population recommendations, warm up the way that you perform and then 
do your workout, go home. Mm-hmm. And then spend more time working on cooking or other hobbies that you have that maybe, or sleeping. Mm-hmm. Not enough athletes sleep a sufficient amount. If I could go back and train one thing about my years when I was competing and training more seriously, I would just mm-hmm. get eight hours of sleep. I really, mm-hmm. I really wish I'd paid more attention to sleeping. And it's only in the last few years that I have. And you realize, oh, wow, like six is not enough. Six hours. I, I thought I felt good, but nope, I was, I really wasn't. And there's uh, an Uzbek lifter who uh, I remember him saying that they were sleeping something like eight to 10 hours a night, plus a two hour nap during the day. Like, but they're training okay. twice a day, three times okay, a day. That's yeah. That's important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The more you're training, maybe not the more you need to sleep, but probably the more important sleep is mm-hmm. sleep is people are always trying to find these like quick fixes to recover faster. And I'm like, you don't need the quick fix. You just actually need to do what your body is like required to do, yeah. which is sleep and eat properly. Yeah. Um, and I think that's actually a big problem in women's fitness is so many women under eat and so many women feel pressured to cut weight. Like I probably shouldn't have cut weight for my power, for my weightlifting meet. I didn't need to, but I wanted to because I was like, it's a kilo and I'm good at weight cutting. Like I know how to do it. But for the most part, you shouldn't be cutting weight unless you are at nationals. Or I guess for weightlifting, it's the American Open finals. Uh, there's a few meets now. So there's American okay. Open Series, American Open Finals, and there's Nationals in addition okay. to like the junior and youth and under 25 versions yeah. of those. If you're looking, uh, juniors and youth probably shouldn't be cutting weight. Uh, if you're looking at the like regular AOs and the Nationals, Series and Finals, unless you're expecting to win your weight class or at least place, I don't think it's worth cutting. It's just mm-hmm. like... For most people, it's not worth it. It's kind of a harsh, harsh way to think about it, but your health is more important. It's it's tough, right? Because I think, and I don't know how it is in powerlifting, but in weightlifting, especially in the past, I guess, eight years, maybe even 10 years, the qualification has gotten much more difficult. And so mm-hmm. I, this is why a lot more people, men and women, are cutting weight is because it's really it's really difficult to qualify compared to like when I was competing. Uh, mm-hmm. When I was competing, numbers that would have gotten you on the podium are now just barely good enough to qualify you for mm-hmm. nationals. And mm-hmm. and I know you know a lot of people want to get to nationals, and so if it's like, well, uh, you know, if I drop down to the 64s, I can, I can qualify. Uh, whereas if I stay as a 71, I won't qualify, but I think it's, it's a tricky thing, right? Cause it can, yeah. I've been in that situation of cutting and cutting in a way that I think made sense and cutting in a way that I was like, why was I doing like, what was the point? Like, and it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to know except in retrospect where it made sense sometimes mm-hmm. for me, at least it was very, like, I can look yeah. back now and say that made sense. That was stupid. Mm-hmm. But in the moment, yeah. you think it makes sense, right? Like, Yeah. I think the the important thing to recognize is from a beginner to where – so I will use myself as an example. When I started powerlifting, I weighed in. I was a 65-kilo lifter, and I am now a 69-kilo lifter. And that's not a huge increase in strength. I have switched federations, which means that – 
the weight classes have changed and I've been able to take advantage of heavier weight classes, but most women, and it's more commonly, I more commonly see this in women who cut weight or who enter into this sport and then never go up a weight class because what they've put on all this muscle, but they haven't actually gained any weight, but they're not getting any better because they're not letting themselves eat enough to get better. And in reality, a lot of women would actually do better at a higher weight class because they would be able to recover better Mm. and perform better with more food. And that's something I see in powerlifting. So like four kilos doesn't sound like a lot, but that's eight pounds. That's like a decent amount of weight for a woman to put on. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas like, I don't think that if you stay in the, like if you enter in at the 71 kilo class in weightlifting Dropping down to the 64, which is, that's a big drop. That's almost 13 pounds. That's a lot. That's a lot of weight. And I don't think that that is a, typically most people who are going to enter into this are going to start off at a relatively healthy body weight. They might lose some weight to maintain a more healthy body weight, but that doesn't necessarily mean that like you should cut all the way to 64. It maybe means you need to be building muscle to fill out 71. So sort of coincidentally, one of the next questions is, are there specific strategies for improving numbers on the bar while staying at the same body weight? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know how much I like this question because I don't think that there are specific things that are going to help you do that. Like, yes, eating well, maintaining your, like high levels of protein and stuff, but no, like if you're going to, if you need to put on muscle in order to put more weight on the bar, you need to put more muscle on. And that might mean over time you lean out. I am leaner now than I was when I started, but that doesn't mean that that's the correct thing to do. Maybe you need to go up a weight class. There's just this stigma around women going up a weight class. And I know what that feels like. And I know women don't want that. And I know that there's like a lot of social cues that tell you not to go up a weight class, but sometimes it's okay to go up a weight class. You you know, it's tricky because we see this in weightlifting too, right? Like you almost can't win because you can be told to go up a weight class and then critiqued once you do go up a weight class. And so, or, or at least, you know, not going up the right way or not filling out a class or it, it really is a tricky situation that I think mm-hmm. uh, most men don't really have to deal with when they're going up or down a weight class. And, you know, and that, that can be even independent of the sort of, let's say, non-athletic criticism of when we go up <laughs> or down Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? Like- <laughs> yeah, the, the social ramifications of being a, a woman in a larger body are not insignificant. Yeah. Yeah. Could also be a whole other episode. But yeah, I think if you want to stay at the same body weight, don't be in a calorie surplus, but recognize that um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're actually going to one, put weight on the bar and two, like, I don't think that actually means it's going to be better. It sounds like this person wants to maximize their total, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you should, it's actually going to work out that way for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it might or it might not. Mm-hmm. So what about a large discrepancy is another question, fixing a discrepancy between squatting and pulling strength. Uh, so you, someone who can pull 40% more than they can squat, which is extraordinary. Uh, squat more. <laughs> I, 
I'm I'm like half joking, but uh, there are a lot of people who actually I know someone who actually squats more than they deadlift, which is the opposite and also weird. But the strength that we have in a certain movement is individual to our specific genetics. And there are some people who are just really, really good at pulling because they have really long arms, which means you don't have to pull it as far, which means you don't have to work as hard. And that's an adaptation that you have that you should take advantage of. And I would stop worrying about the discrepancy between your squatting and pulling strength because you don't actually care. What you care about is the clean and jerk and the snatch. And if those, if you can maximize those totals for yourself, that's what's more important than the discrepancy between the two. And then a question around, uh, are there, or do you have thoughts on the optimal proportions of strength work to Olympic lifts performed each week? Yeah, I think it depends on what you're trying to focus on, what you want out of your training, what you're doing well in, how you're trying to improve. Like, Mm -hmm. if you need to be stronger than two more strength work, Mm -hmm. if you don't need to be and you need to be working on technique work, then work on technique work. And I guess a related question is whether somebody could make reasonable progress just by snatching and clean and jerking without any strength work, so no loads over their max snatch and clean and jerk numbers. Yes, I think that will work for a while. And then I think you will outpace your own strength and you'll have to go back and do more strength work. So no, yeah. overall, I yeah. mean, unless I think it's possible that like in my situation, yeah, I will be able to progress without doing any specific strength work for a while, but that's not the typical. True. Unless that's an you interesting, can, I- interesting point. Yeah. You could probably get away with just doing snatch and clean. And if you were, let's say you said, I'm just not going to be a power lifter anymore. You could probably get away with it for a long time. Whereas somebody I mean, who yeah. came in with no strength base, uh, would very quickly yeah. reach a limit. Yeah. And I think it's again, individual. And to give you an example, my plan going forward is to snatch once a week and clean and jerk once a week and do my powerlifting training otherwise. And mm-hmm that's what I'm going to do. So we'll see if it works. I'll let, I'll get back to you. <laughs> and then another question. So higher volume squats, so five to eight reps close to maximal loads are fine, but when attempting anything close to a one rep max, it doesn't budge. This uh, question comes from a woman who says, I know that for us, it's more common to be able to perform higher intensities for more reps, but how to make it transferable to a new one RM, the weight on the shoulders just feels mm-hmm. impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the estimated 1RM that you're seeing in your calculator is just that. It's an estimation. And this goes back to the differences that you are seeing, that we're seeing in the literature, that women are less fatigable. That is that idea. And it sounds like you are part of that cohort, and that's fine. Things you can do to get better at your 1RM are do more singles and train at that higher intensity if you really care about actually improving your 1RM back squat. Again, you're probably a weightlifter. You probably don't actually care about your 1RM back squat other than for yourself, right? Which is fine. If you really want to improve that, it's probably time to do more singles and practice the single itself. Practice the 1RM. And so that means you're going to have singles and or doubles around 92, 93%. And you're going to practice those. We, we do one at eight a lot in powerlifting. That's a very common number. Um, or rep scheme is a single at RPE eight. 
and you'll practice that and that will make you better at singles. That's how I would work on that. If it's something you really actually care about, if it's something that you care about because you want it to improve your snatch and clean and jerk, then it's less important to care about what, because you're going to be able to back squat more than you can clean and jerk. So if you're wanting to improve your back squat because you think it's going to improve your clean and jerk, then I would just slowly work at your back squat the way you have been, but I wouldn't make huge changes. If you want to compete in powerlifting, you should practice singles more and then you can compete in the back squat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sort of goes back to what you were saying earlier of the specificity, right? Of, mm-hmm. of the movement, right? Like if you're getting good at sets of five to eight, that will get you better at that. Whereas mm-hmm. practice singles, if you want to get better at singles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You can, there are times where I have run a program where I have done 10 singles in a day and that was my program for the day was I did mm-hmm. 10 back squats and they were just singles and it, it's awful. It is not a fun way <laughs> to practice singles, but there's also probably some kind of nervousness that comes in when you're dealing with singles. Singles are a unique stimulus in so far that most people get really nervous about them, especially the back squat. Cause it's the only lift. Well, in powerlifting, it's the only lift that's actually sitting on top of you. Mm-hmm. And typically it's our first lift, which makes us additionally nervous so, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, and I know there's a lot of uh, individual variation, but I, I have seen this in weightlifters as well, where people can get really good at, for us, let's say things like doubles and triples, mm-hmm. and it doesn't translate into a single, an improvement at the one rep max. And some of it, I think, is just um, a single, right? The the emotional and psychological intensity of approaching mm-hmm. 95% and up is can be very different from approaching mm-hmm. 90% and and below and not practicing that can can have an effect for some athletes some athletes can train mm-hmm. at 80% for a cycle go in and open up at 100% or more right like they're just yeah. they're accustomed to that yeah and i think it takes training and time and things that we haven't touched on today are like some of the mental adaptations or mental mind games you have to play with yourself mm-hmm. to get through some of those things. So you are not unique in so far that <laughs> you are afraid of your single and your back squat. Yeah, I'm exactly. terrified of mine. So mm-hmm. sort of uh, buried in this is I think a point that I wonder if you could clarify related to what we were talking about with uh, women and volume. So this individual is talking very specifically about uh, volume in a set, right? Do you mm-hmm. know, I, I think part of the weightlifting mythos is like, over the course of a training block, women handle more volume or can handle. Is there mm-hmm. any any evidence to this? It, it doesn't seem like it. It seems like most of the research you're talking about is like specific to a, a certain a movement as opposed to like over the course of eight weeks, women can handle 20% more volume or something. Or is oh, there... shoot. I don't know if I know the research on that specific question. Mm-hmm. I would have to go back and look. Um, but my gut reaction is telling me no because we're individuals and it's very dependent on your previous training history on a lot of different things. And there is some idea that like, because women's weights are typically on average lighter, they're less fatiguing. I argue with that, but I'm going to stick with an, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I will 
happily get back to you on it, but I just don't, I don't want to give a definitive answer with, without checking the research. Yeah, fair enough. And then, uh, is there any good research on how to change or tailor programming for masters athletes? As uh, some yeah. individuals wondering, they're approaching their fifties. Mm-hmm. What are the best strategies for longevity in the sport of weightlifting? So again, the the same tenets of programming still apply no matter what age you are. And that study that I cited earlier, a TNN et al, also had people of many different ages in that study. So with 500 people, there were people of all ages. And there is no way to tell. It's not like we get a master's athlete and we say, all right, so um, you're old, so you're not going to train as well anymore. So we're going to give you this different training program. Nope. Same idea as between men and women. This individual will benefit from paying attention to their recovery, to their sleep, to um, having training that is recoverable, repeatable, auto-regulated, and progressively loaded. Same ideas are still applicable. There are people who have started powerlifting or weightlifting later in life who do fantastic. And there are people who start very early in life who never make it to the Olympics and both happen. And it's, it's less age dependent and definitely more genetics dependent, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be super successful as you enter into your weight training or into your fifties. Assume you're going to be, just as trainable and just as adaptable as you were prior, because there's nothing to make us believe that you won't be. And women who are approaching menopause are going to be just as strong and just as capable as they were beforehand. And there's research that shows that being active and working out and eating well will make you still be a great athlete. So So basically the same principles apply masters non-masters athlete there is a sense that like masters need to train men and women need to train differently but in your view it uh, and correct me if i'm wrong but like it's much more individual than being able to say ah you've turned 40 or 50 now you need mm-hmm. to switch over to x or y training yeah 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 i mean the other way to answer this question is what happens at 50 for every single person that says now you need to train differently There's not anything. There's not like one life instance that happens at 50 for all people. That's like, yep, this means you need to train differently now because one, menopause happens at different times for people. Two, we've shown that it's not just menopause that's happening. It's a decrease in physical activity. And so why don't we just train until you prove that you need something different? So is there any... Or do you have thoughts on, on, let's say, getting into this sort of master's realm of in the 40s and 50s with, let's say, 20 or 30 years of training behind you versus getting Mm -hmm. into the master's realm with zero training behind you? So I think if you have all of this information about yourself and you have 20 or 30 years of training behind you, you know yourself, right? You know yourself as an athlete. You know what to expect week to week. I would not expect that to change drastically the moment the clock strikes midnight on your 50th birthday. If you are just getting into training as a master's athlete, I expect nothing different from you than I do from any beginner athlete who we will start slowly. We will see what you respond to and we will build up this repertoire or like 
this library of what we know works for you and what you respond to. And we'll build from there. So it's more that in that situation, you have different amounts of information to work with, but that would be true with any athlete. So like me entering into athletics at 27. So like me entering into weightlifting at 26 is no different than somebody entering into athletics or weightlifting at 14. We have no information about how we respond to that kind of training. Powerlifting aside, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say I wasn't a powerlifter. It doesn't matter. We just have different amounts of information. Yeah. So so basically take what you've learned about yourself. If you are someone coming into your Mm -hmm. fourth, fifth decade of life uh, and you have this background, take what you've learned in the preceding years of training and keep using it. Continue to apply it. Yeah. Yeah. You it's not like a switch turns and we become different, different creatures. We're still human. We still adapt. And that's like the, the tenant of the main tenant of training is that you adapt to it. So you're still going to adapt just over time that will slowly change. Mm -hmm. Just like people recognize, like when they started training, they were maybe really good at something and their bench got really good fast or their snatch got really good fast and their clean and jerk or their deadlift kind of held behind And then all of a sudden that switched. That happens for everybody. And that's not age related. It's just what it is. Mm -hmm. I think we have covered everything I wanted to cover, including all of our questions. I think we covered everything. (laughs) (laughs) We covered everything. Start to finish. We we hit all all the bases. So before before we totally wrap up, first of all, I really appreciate your time. You have yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Answered my questions for nearly two hours, <laughs> which is fantastic. Where where should people go to learn about your work? To learn about your coaching? Anything you want to to point people to and promote? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I am mostly active on Instagram these days. So the best way to find me is at Claire underscore Barbell Medicine. That's my Instagram handle. I am on Twitter. I don't use it very often. I should be better about it, but I think it's just Claire's eye on Twitter. And then if you want or are looking for coaching, all of my coaching is run through Barbell Medicine and you can find the application on our website, uh, barbellmedicine.com. And in the last box, if you really want to work with me specifically, you can uh, just say, I want to work with Claire. We do have weightlifting coaches um, at Barbell Medicine. I am not one of them, considering that I have done literally two weeks of weightlifting. You don't want me as your weightlifting coach. But if you're looking for other kinds of strength training, I am definitely a resource and always able to answer questions if you have them. And then, yeah, other than that, the only other cool thing that I am looking forward to in the next year is I run a fundraiser called Load Women. And it encourages women to get involved in strength training. And it's an online deadlift competition. So Mm -hmm. that happens in April. And I'm starting to gear up and start getting that ready to go. So Mm -hmm. that is something to look forward to. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. And as a powerlifter, I should have asked this earlier, but what are your your best lifts, competitive or in training? Uh, My best lifts, I just competed at nationals. I won second at nationals this year. Congrats. Thank you. So I did a 177 and a half kilo squat, 120 kilo bench press, and a 202.5 kilo deadlift. Oh, wow. So, so 500 a, kilo total. As a 69? 
69 kilos. Yeah. Awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. I'm very happy. So, mm-hmm. uh, winning second, I won second behind an incredible lifter. She had a 5:30 total. She's very strong. And then me and the next two women all tied. Um, and so I won on body weight, which was pretty cool. So nice. Congrats. Yeah. The cutting paid off. So it's funny because weightlifting very recently got rid of the body weight win rule, which oh, I really? think is great. Yeah. Basically, whoever does it first, placement <gasps> goes, whoever does it first. So that's interesting. It is. So, yeah, if you, uh, you know, if uh, you total, let's say 250, and uh, it means you now can't total 250 just uh, to win on body weight, you have to go 251, basically. So, are there half kilos in weightlifting? Nope, it's only one kilo. It's so, one kilo in script. Yeah, so yeah. in 2005, if I'm getting my years right, 2005, they switched over to one kilo increments. Prior to that, it was two and a half kilo increments, which is actually a lot. And especially mm-hmm. for lighter athletes, you know, youth athletes, like a 2.5 kilo increase is a big jump. Mm-hmm. The only exception was if you were breaking a record you could break it in half kilo increments. Mm-hmm. That's but, what powerlifting is right now. But he, uh, here we're getting into the weeds of weightlifting rules and minutia. You could, if you broke it by half a kilo in a on a weight that was not a 2.5 kilo increment, so let's say you did, uh, let's say the record was 172.5 and you did 173, right? Mm-hmm. You were not, you were credited with 173 for the record, you were not credited with 173 for your real your total for placement. You only got the 1725. So you could outlift somebody technically, but lose because you are not credited for those 0.5 increments. That's so weird. It's very weird. And if I'm not mistaken, it did happen. It was rare, but it, it there are instances, if I'm remembering correctly, of people doing more but losing because again you are not credited for that 0.5 world record breaking increment so when we switched over to one kilo increments it simplified all of that everything normal attempt record attempt one kilo some people weren't thrilled about it but it it, i think it's great it made it strategy much more interesting and attempt selection much more interesting and of course it helps out i mean you know one of the first youth athletes i coached you know, I think she was at her first nationals starting with 33 in the snatch, or I think I have it written down up there. 30, yeah, 33. I mean, I was able to go 33, 35, 36 or something. Like, you know, that was a lot of weight for her. The... Oh, it's in kilos. Uh, yeah. So, that, yeah, that's a lot of weight. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. When I sent my original attempt selection to Quinn, I was like, uh, so... I want, I was like 50, 55, 60. And he's like, you know, you don't have to pick five kilo increments, right? <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> it was like completely foreign to me. And then we were at the meet and he was like, okay, 64, 65. And I was like, what? What do you, <laughs> what do you want from me? Mm-hmm. How is that different? In, like, because in my mind, that's not different, but. It is different when you're snatching it. <laughs> exactly. A kilo, uh, yeah, we yeah. joke, you know, you might, you might, days when you might do a weight and you can't do a gram more, it, mm-hmm. it really can make a difference. So uh, going even further back, 
the original rules didn't even allow for a 2.5 kilo jump between your first and second. You had to do a five kilo jump. The only way you could do a 2.5 jump is if you basically forfeit your second attempt because second to third attempt, you could do a 2.5 kilo jump. It was weird. It was a, it was different. Talk about barriers to sport that uh, (laughs) definitely like preclude women and smaller athletes because that like even in powerlifting, a 2.5 kilo increase is the max increase or it's the minimum increase you can do. But there are athletes on bench where a two and a half kilo increase is huge. Yeah. It's a lot. Um, and like, yeah, I wonder how powerlifting would change if we did a one kilo increment. So you, you are on a 2.5 kilo increment. We're on a 2.5 kilo increment. Yeah. And can you break records by less than that or is it every yeah, 2.5 you can everything? Break okay. it by a half kilo. Okay. Yeah. If you're breaking a record, you can pick whatever you want. So we obviously have the plates to do it, right? Yeah. But not everyone has access to them. So that's interesting. The other thing that's so crazy to me about weightlifting, it's such a dynamic sport and you don't tie down all of the plates. <laughs> <laughs> and if you did that to a power lifter, like on a max back squat, they would be like, oh my God, I can feel it. And in reality, they probably can't. <laughs> but I was like watching that and I was like, we are such babies. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I, I want to sort of add a little nuance to this because, yes, for I, I will say a lot of times we don't. <laughs> yes, <okay>? you are babies. <laughs> no, 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 not, not that you're babies. But we don't tie down waist. And I remember being in, oh, my God, one of the gyms that, when I was in grad school, uh, is at Rutgers. The gym there, they would always. It was it was way before like CrossFit anything was big, mm-hmm. right? So we were we were lucky to have platforms because we couldn't use the D one athlete space that had like you know probably sixteen platforms and bars and everything. So we had two platforms, a couple bars, and we had to f- convince them that they had to buy a women's bar because of Title IX requirements, right? Like we had to beg them for a women's bar. Anyway, we would train there and we would get yelled at for not using clips, and I was like. I don't fucking need clips. Like I'm doing 60 key. I'm, I literally have two plates on the bar. So we do often not use clips or anything to hold the weights down. But in warm-up rooms at the international level, I have often seen that top athletes will use clips because, or they will use collars, mm-hmm. collars or clips because they want to replicate the feel of the actual loaded bar because there is 100 and i don't know about powerlifting where you're moving you know 800 pounds or something in the squat but there is definitely a different barbell feel with a weight that is securely loaded versus Mm -hmm. unsecurely loaded and Mm -hmm. yeah top athletes they will you'll watch them and yeah they take the time to put clips or collars on in the warm-up room often from light weights i collared so i started my snatch like two weeks ago, like 40 kilos. And I would put clips on it because yeah. I could feel the difference. Yep. I was also lifting on a barbell that did not spin. Oh, like I would, the worst. I would, I would go on it and it would go now. And I was like, <laughs> Oh no. I was like, I know this is supposed to spin more than this. And then we got to the weightlifting meet and I went and did it to one of the bars and it was like, dum, 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 dum. Yeah. and I was like, Oh, this might feel a little funny. And it was actually a lot easier, but 
yeah, I clip everything because I it does make a difference. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then when you drop it, it doesn't like doesn't go all my, over the place. Yeah, my my explanations for weightlifting are not quite on point yet. I mean, that's we that's, we all know what you mean. Plates going the everywhere. Plates are exactly. going across the end of the barbell. So yeah. yeah. No, I I like the way it feels with with collars now. Like mm-hmm. I really because it is a different feel, absolutely. And I mean. You know, you make do in there are certainly lots of gyms where there just aren't enough collars and you have to train a certain way. And like you said, right, there's something nice about at least I recall, right? So, that, again, at Rutgers, the bars we had weren't great. I remember showing up for my first nationals and that it was a beautiful barbell spun beautifully, doing my first attempt and thinking, oh my God, like that bar leapt off my hips and everything because of this spin. And so it's you know yeah. a safety issue but also it actually does help i think if you're mm-hmm. uh, if you're doing the olympic lifts yeah it would make sense i think it's the the change plates on the out i don't know at what point change plates start to go inside the clips mm-hmm. um but there is a point at which they start to and then but there's still some on the outside i'm always very curious as to how that works but it's interesting <laughs> So yeah, below two point five or 2.5. yeah, below two point five kilos, they go on the outside, but they can also go on the inside. Like if if um, if you're loading it so far out that it's a risk that they might fly off or something, you can load them on the inside, basically. So it kind of depends. But I think it was started to try to speed up weightlifting meets because this way, once we switched over to the one kilo rule, right? Like this way, you could very quickly. Mm-hmm. Take one off, put it on without having to take the collar off mm-hmm. and put the put the weight on because there yeah. were much more. There were many more, I suspect, weight changes once we switched over to one kilo increments. Yeah, the the changes that slow the meat down to try and like give yourself more time are very interesting to me. It's very strategic and we don't have that in powerlifting. You don't I have know. that option. I know. And, you know, I... I only know uh, a sport with weight changes, right? And so I'm mm-hmm. used to that. I'm used to that as a strategy, as a coach, as an athlete. But it also it does slow things down mm-hmm. because people, understandably, want to rest more. And you will, I mean, it can be an art figuring out how long to wait before you put a change in and whatnot. Uh, to say nothing of, you know, asking that they sweep the platform or. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that too this weekend yeah. and I was like, what are, like, I was like standing there waiting and was like, wait, can mm-hmm. we sweep the platform? And I was like, why? Why? I'm ready rest. to go. Yeah, rest, <laughs> exactly. And it's, I, somebody should look at, like, how often they sweep the platform before third attempts or last, right? Because that's where everyone's already a little gassed. And it's like, all right, especially big third attempts, people will go mm-hmm. out of their way to figure out sometimes, you know, how do we give this person more more rest? Oh, we'll sweep the platform. Oh, is the bar clean? Let's clean the bar right now. Let's, you know, let's do everything we can to mm-hmm. drag it out. I think the very smart move that I saw people make was to ask for an attempt that is right below a big plate change. So for women to be 69 to 70. 69 to 70. Okay. Uh, The, the, the barbell, the 15 kilo barbell still throws me. (laughs) Yeah. Do a lot of calculator calculations still, but 69 to 70. I was like, that was, 
you're not dumb. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. That takes a while. So are you training on, I mean, in powerlifting, I guess you just have the bar, right? It's not. We have a 20 no... kilo, men and women use the same barbell. Yeah. Okay. So mm -hmm. that was the case in weightlifting until weightlifting was added to the Olympics mm. at the, in 2000. At that point, it might've been a few years before 2000 that they made the switch, but at, at a certain point they did then switch to uh, a men's bar and a women's bar. And the cynical reason I have rumored, to, or that is rumored, is this meant you could, in theory, get two barbell sponsors for an Olympics. So I don't know if that's true, but uh, for yeah, for many years, women lifted on, there was just the barbell. And now yeah. there's the men's and women's bar. I do appreciate the smaller diameter barbell because I can't hook grip. Uh, I have small hands, even mm -hmm. as like a slightly larger athlete, but like... I can't hook grip a, a power, we call them power bars. Mm -hmm. I can't hook grip a power bar, but I can definitely hook grip the yeah. 15 kilo bar. So yeah. so I have smaller hands and that was mm -hmm. always an issue for me is like, you know, this, it's hard for me. I mean, I can hook uh, the men's bar, but every now and then just playing around, I'll, I'll hook on the women's bar. And I'm like, this is perfect. Like this is, yeah, this, this is, is what it feels like to have a really solid grip as opposed to be like stressing about like, Oh my God, am I getting as much mm -hmm. of my thumb under as possible? Yeah. My thumbs hurt and it is a new experience. For me. <laughs> we don't you, hook grip very commonly in powerlifting. It's not like a common thing to do. So. Did you try taping them or anything? Oh, I already have ripped them open. So okay. I have calluses now forming. But the like stress on the thumb joint so from pulling, hook, from yeah. pulling with it is uncomfortable, mm -hmm. and it's just new. So it'll just it, dissipate with time. But exactly when I switched yeah. over, yeah, I remember thinking this is this is the worst. This is so painful. Why this is so stupid? And then after a couple of weeks, it's like mm -hmm. I don't know how I did anything other than than a hook grip. For than the a hook grip, it really yeah. becomes yeah. challenging to not do them. Yeah, I need to figure out that receiving position on the clean so that I don't end up. But Has it, anyone it really, ever broken a collarbone weightlifting? Because I feel like that would be a risk. I am unaware of this, to be totally honest. Huh. And I can think of certainly like lots of other. So like, let's say just thinking about world events. Uh-huh. In 10 years of world events that I've seen, of the injuries I've seen, I have never that I'm aware of seen that. Okay. So hundreds, thousands of lifts. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen it at a national event. I can never, ever think of that. I think it's probably, there's probably other things that break down first that prevent mm -hmm. people from doing it. Like they just, they don't even get it to their shoulder or mm -hmm. they just like, you know, I've seen people uh, break forearms or hands or, or hurt themselves. Because the bar a, comes down? Because the bar coming down. There's a very famous case, Zach Critch, who was doing cleans with straps, and he sort of fell back with the bar in a clean, and it came across his forearms. So, like, there are... And that's... This is an outlier among outliers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people who've, you know, catching it wrong and then driving. Uh, so if you think of yourself in the bottom of a clean, you're sort of being driven down mm -hmm. uh, and compressed, right? But in that case, again, it's like the hand or wrist that's injured. Mm -hmm. But a, a collarbone... It's funny because I've seen, I can think of two, like, attempts with huge amounts of weight where it is crashing on people, mm -hmm. but... But yeah, never, never a broken collarbone. I don't know what it is about the collarbone, but 
It's and probably then, the the like the structure of the sternum underneath is probably very good mm-hmm. to help support that. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I don't, luckily, it guessing. doesn't. It yeah. doesn't happen. It was so much fun watching everyone warm up because obviously I wasn't able to watch people perform. Yeah. But watching people warm up, and I was like, I look like I'm doing this in slow motion. <laughs> compared to you people and it was and this is just like a local meet and i'm like you guys are incredible because it's hard to judge how good like Mm -hmm. kate and i or maddie rogers is because they're so much better and the weight is so heavy that it does kind of move in slow motion but these people are moving like 70 kilos and i'm like i'm sorry i blinked yeah and you were done it's a (laughs) very impressive it's a fast movement it's a very fast sport and to me that that's one of the most exciting things is watching mm-hmm. how fast some of these athletes are, especially mm-hmm. in person. And some of it can come across in video, but yeah, when you're seeing really fast athletes in person, there's something yeah. even more impressive. Yeah. And I think the this is coming from my very narrow perspective as a power lifter of like knowing what these weights feel like when I move them on other movements. So like I was watching Kate Nye's uh I think it was her snatch and she was snatching 105 kilos, something like that. She just a lot of weight. Yeah. Yeah. And her best is one in training 114, officially 112. Yeah. So still like 112 is like, I know what that weight feels like. I've picked that up mm-hmm. and then watching her do it and like get it over her head. I now have, and then doing the technique that she's doing that with and realizing how hard that technique is. Mm-hmm. It's very humbling and it's unreal how good they are. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and I think it's easy to get lost in that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's cool. That's a, I think, you know, as much as powerlifting and weightlifting are sometimes at odds with each other, at the very least, both sports do have an appreciation for what weights are and what weights mean that. Mm-hmm. People who don't move barbells don't really have. Like, they, they can acknowledge what's a lot of weight, what's a little in some abstract sense. But if you've moved 100 kilos in any way, uh-huh. you now have a new appreciation for what 100 kilos means. And you realize, like, you know, for anybody, 50 kilos is a, is a lot, right? Like, you know, you, you have to yeah. reset your goals and expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think more people should should try both sports because they're very different and they're very hard in their own way. And mm-hmm. I don't think one of them is harder than the other one. But it's really cool to see other like I'm enjoying like stepping into a new a new group of people mm-hmm. and experiencing new things. And I think mm-hmm. more athletes would benefit from not just like the physical like things that we can learn from another sport, but the mental things too. Like there's a different mental aspect to weightlifting mm-hmm. that I think many powerlifters would benefit from. Mm-hmm. So. It's funny. I have a friend who, um, he, he had no barbell experience up until maybe three, four years ago mm-hmm. and started out as like, you know, going to like a planet fitness, I guess, or something. Mm-hmm. And, and now is like all in. <laughs> okay. Yeah. In, and he's competed once in powerlifting, and he might compete again, but he's he's all in and training that way, and like mm-hmm. he's really embraced it. And so I went to the powerlifting meet with him, and and I, I've been it's given me a chance to sort of be on the edges of that a little bit, and just to mm-hmm. meet some more powerlifters. And yeah, it's just fun. I remembered like, oh yeah, like 
I just like barbell sports. Like I just like seeing people move weights and, and it's just fun to see something different and watching somebody squat big weights is just, it's just fun. What, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's given me, especially if you get a little stale or if you get sort of down on your own sport, you sort of take a step back and realize, Oh yeah, barbell sports are just fun. This is what I got into it for. Right. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. why I like these. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly how I feel. So, mm. yeah. so we need more coming. weightlifting, powerlifting. I agree. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah. Thank you so much. That means. Yes. Thank you for having me. This was awesome.